the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that 
point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, as Jeff said, Brian is hes on vacation. I don't know where he went, but I think he's probably down, got his toes in the sand somewhere, I don't know, with warmer climb and nicer weather. But uh, he, uh, he knew he was going to be gone, so he had to, have, he had to get somebody to fill in for him. And he decided that he would, uh, he would call the smartest person that he knew to fill this, uh, this Sunday. And that person said no. And so he decided then, well, I'll just try to find the best-looking person to fill my role here. And that person said no. So then he decided, well... I probably should get the wisest person that I know to fill, to fill in for me this Sunday. And, uh, well, I, I felt so bad I didn't want to say no three times to him. So, uh, so I guess you're stuck with me. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Oh, gracious God, we just ask that you would be with us now at this time. 
that you would have your way with us and uh, you would uh, speak your truth and teach us that we might learn of your ways. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be your presence, your spirit might come and be in our hearts and our minds. And I ask that you would be with me and make me better than I am. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our flyover of the Bible, and this morning we're going to begin uh, our Passover. Did you get that? Our Passover of the book of Exodus. Our Passover. I thought that was pretty clever. Apparently not, huh? Anyway, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus is my favorite book in all of the Bible. And today we're going to be dealing with just the first 12 chapters. But there is so much to see and so much to learn from the book of Exodus. We could spend an entire year in this book alone. And I know that because I've spent that much time in this book in the class that I used to teach. So uh, if you ever want to dig a little bit deeper, let me just give you something that might be a little helpful to you. This This video was great. It really outlines some things, but you can actually break this book down into six sections or six parts, and I'll give them to you real quick. Some of them was up there. Chapters one through four deal with the call of Moses. Chapters five through 11, as God demonstrating his power to the the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, for that matter. Chapters 12 through 15 deals with the Exodus itself. And chapter 16 through 31 is the giving of the law. And then chapters 32 through 34 is Israel breaking God's covenant and then God coming back and renewing it with them. And then in chapters 35 through 40 are the instructions of, uh, regarding the, the construction of the tabernacle. So this might help you as you progress through the book a little bit, because it it is, it's sectioned off in six different sections. And as I said earlier, it's my favorite book in all of the Bible. And there's a reason for that, because um, there's a chapter in this book, and really one verse in particular in that chapter that materially changed my life. And it was a, I guess you could say it was a defining moment in my relationship with God. And I want to share it with you this morning because it, uh, it'll give you some context to what I want to talk about in, in regards to the first 12 chapters of Exodus. It, and it's, the verse is Exodus chapter 33, verse 13. Exodus 33, verse 13, and it's a prayer that Moses prayed. And for me, it goes all the way back to 1984. Well, it's hard to believe it was 40 years ago. But anyway, I was teaching a class on the book of Exodus, and I came across this prayer. And it's a prayer that Moses prayed, and it goes like this. He said, Lord, I pray thee... If I have found favor in thy sight, teach me your ways, that I might know thee, that I might find favor in your sight. 
Let me say that again. Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, teach me your ways that I might know thee and that I might find favor in your sight. Now, when I first read that, it made no sense at all to me. It was non sequitur. It was redundant. It's as if Moses was saying, God, if I have pleased you, teach me how to please you. I mean, and I, 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 I read it over and I, I just kind of blew it off. But somehow, God caused me to linger over that prayer and to think about it. And, it, and, and I came to realize that the important part of that prayer was Moses asking God to teach him his ways. Lord, teach me your ways. You see, in this prayer, Moses wanted to know God's nature. He wanted to know God's purposes and, God, and how he works in the world and how he relates to people. Teach me your ways, Lord, that I might know thee. And in knowing you, then I'll know what pleases you. That, you know, that is so profound on so many levels. And, as I, and I started to pray that prayer every day, and I prayed that prayer almost every day. There's days that I'll forget, but almost every day for the last 40 years, I have prayed that prayer, and I can't even begin to tell you all that God has shown me over the years. You see, he answered my prayer. And he answered Moses' prayer too, by the way, because in as we find later on in Scripture, in Psalm 103, verse 7, it says this, that God revealed his ways to Moses and his mighty acts to the children of Israel. God revealed his ways to Moses, but his mighty acts to the children of Israel. And, and this is where I, I want to point out something to you that is very important. There, there is an important difference between God's ways and his mighty acts. Because, you know, if you think about this, isn't it true? Think about our prayer life. Most often when we pray, aren't we chasing after the mighty acts of God? I mean, seriously. We're always asking God to do something, aren't we? Oh, Lord, you know, God, please heal this person or, or fix this marriage or, or help me with my finances or, or help me find the right job or whatever. We pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray for God to intervene into the situations and circumstances of our lives. We're always asking God to do something, aren't we? I mean, we chase after the mighty acts of God. We want him to do something. Now, there's, having said, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are all legitimate prayers, and God answers those prayers. But here is what Moses understood, that the mighty acts of God are temporary. They come and they go. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But God's ways are eternal. 
His nature never changes. His ways never change. That's an important distinction, folks. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of what Albert Einstein said once when he was asked about God's creation in the universe. And he says, I want to know God's thoughts because all the rest are just details. I want to know God. I want to know God's ways, not, not what he does. And this is where I want us to go this morning. This is what I want us to see something of his ways and how he, how he relates to nations and to people and to individuals and to you and to me. I want us to see and I want us to understand one of his ways. In chapters 7 through 11 in Exodus, we have the account of the 10 plagues that God brought against the Egyptian nation and the Egyptian people. And we find it summarized in one verse, and that is in, verse tw or in chapter 12 and verse 12. Are we putting up there? Okay, good. And this is what it says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Now, I say that's a summary because each of the ten plagues, and we just saw this in the video before, each of the ten plagues that God brought against Egypt were directly targeted specifically at an Egyptian god. All ten of them. And I don't have time this morning to go through all ten of them, but, the, but here are just a few. I'll just give you an example. For example, the people of Egypt worshipped the Nile River. And the god that the god was over the Nile River, his name was Happy. That's H-A-P-I. It's not one of the seven dwarves, that happy. All right? This is, I guess I'm pronouncing that right. But the Nile was a source of of their, there was the source of the sustenance and the provision for the Egyptian people, and they worshipped it as a god. And the first plague, do you remember? What's the first plague in, in the ten that God brought against Egypt? Anybody know? He turned the Nile River to blood, and all the waters of Egypt were turned to blood. So it was directly targeted at that god. The second one that I'll speak of is a god named Hathor, and that was the Egyptian god of livestock. And the fourth plague struck all of their livestock and all of their cattle. And then Ra, Ra was the sun god. And, the god and, and if you remember, in the ninth plague, God came and he blotted out the sun, and he, and he brought darkness over the land of Egypt. And then finally, there's Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was worshipped by the Egyptians as, their, as the greatest god of all. In fact, they, they thought that he was the son of Ra manifest in the, in the flesh. And this godship of Pharaoh passed down through his lineage. So when God struck the firstborn of Egypt, beginning with the firstborn of Pharaoh himself, it severed this divine lineage 
this Godship line for the people of, Israel, or people of Egypt was broken through the death of the firstborn. And this is what I want you to see here. This is one of the ways of God. And again, the ways of God are eternal. God got the attention of the Egyptians by dealing with them through their gods, through their idols, if you will. Remember, the ways of God are eternal. They don't come and go. They're always there. And it's not just the Egyptians or the secular world that God deals with in this way. It is also the way he deals with his people. As you read through the Old Testament, and you're going to be doing that hopefully this year, as you read through, and even in the New Testament, you will find that the number one issue that God has with his people, anybody care to guess? It's idolatry. It's their idolatry. They're always chasing after other gods. And that's how God deals with them, through their idols. That's how God gets their attention. And there's example after example throughout the Bible. Let me just point out one to you from the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14. And in this story, I'll just give you some context here. In this story, the people of Israel, they were out chasing after false prophets and false gods, and God was judging them. He was getting their attention, and things weren't going real well for them. So they decided they would come to the prophet, to Ezekiel, and see if he might intercede for them on their behalf before God. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Let me read it. And then some, of the, it, some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... These men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? I mean, God said, he said, should I even listen to them? Because all the idols that are in their heart, therefore speak to them and tell them thus says the Lord God, any man to, of this house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in view of the multitude of his idols. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in view of the multitude of his idols. In other words, I will speak to them through their idols. I will communicate to them through their idols, through the things that they believe are the most important. Now, why does God do, why does God do this? Why, does he, why is this the way he works? Well, he explains it to them in, in verse 5. In verse 5 is very important because it speaks to God's motive. He says, in order to lay hold of their hearts, of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me by all their idols. In order to lay hold of their hearts, this is why I do it. This is why God speaks to us, to you and me, through our idols. Not to exact punishment, 
but to bring us back to a rightful relationship with him. You see, it's an act of grace. It's not an act of punishment. It's an act of grace. It's an act of love. And you will find story after story after story throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New. Do you remember the story in the New Testament of the rich young ruler? This means just I remember that story. This means no, I don't. Do you remember that story? Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure you're still with me. But the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked him, what must I do to, attain, to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's the law say? And then he quotes the commandments, right? And Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. If you do that, you'll live. But then he looks, he looks right into the man's heart. He sees his idol because he's rich. He's got all this property. And he says, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You remember how the story ended? The story ended, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because his idol was his wealth. And he wasn't going to part with it. He, you see, he quoted the commandments as this is the way I get eternal life. And Jesus says, you're right. So then what does he do? He points out that he's in violation of the very first commandment. The very first commandment. You know, friends, we need to, we need to know something here. God is serious about this stuff. So, and he's so serious, he puts it right up front. The first commandment, what is it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what's the second one? You shall not make a graven image, and you shall not have any idols that you worship before me. And that rich young ruler, he quoted the commandments, and then he realized he was in violation of the first two. And God will speak to us, gentlemen. He says, no, no idols. And he will speak to us through our idols. That's one of his ways. And that's how he gets our attention. And over the centuries, you look at it, everything's changed, but nothing's different. And everything's different, but nothing's changed. God's ways are eternal, and God, God still speaks to nations and to people through their idols. And if you look at our modern culture today, I mean, it's so easy to think, well, we're so advanced, we're so progressed. But the reality is today's world is no different. We have created idols everywhere, haven't we? Things that have become object of our worship. And one of the, you know, one of the more recent industries that's developed in our modern economy, or our economy are the people who call themselves influencers on the Internet. You know? Anybody ever looked at them? And they're all about teaching others about personal fulfillment and all this other stuff. They call themselves life coaches or fitness coaches or whatever. Whatever they can get people to buy into. And they're very successful, by the way. And they're successful because they pander to the idols of our lives. 
That's why it works. Lifestyle coaches, for, you know, for those who are obsessed with, with healthy living or healthy diets or fitness or maybe it deals with success or prestige or status, however way you want to measure it. Um, and then there are those that focus on kids and families and things like that. You know, I know a lot of people that, that idolize their children and their children become idols. Now I'm in the uh, I'm in the investment business and have been for over 50 years, and I can tell you that one of the foremost idols that people have are their 401k plans and their IRAs, and, and you know that uh, they just pile money on top of money on top of money so they can ensure a comfortable and secure retirement so they can make it safely to death. Really, that's what it amounts to. And, and retirement becomes their idol. You know, I'll tell you a story. I had a, had a client, this was a number of years ago, I had a client that came into my office and he was, he was seeking some advice. And this guy was a friend of mine in fact, he had he'd been attending my Sunday school class for a number of years. And he came in, and he, he worked at State Farm. And he said, you know, I'm currently, I'm currently contributing 10% of my salary to my 401k plan, but I can go to 15%. What do you think I should do? And I don't know where this came from, but it came right out of my mouth. And I said, well... What percentage of your income are you giving to God? And there was dead silence in the room. I mean, this is not the kind of question you expect from your financial advisor, right? I said, well, maybe, maybe you ought to think about putting God at least on an equal footing with your 401k plan. Now, I don't know what he did after that. I don't know whatever happened there. But of all the counsel, all the all the in the financial counseling I've done over the years, that was probably the best financial advice I've ever given to anyone. In fact, I think it is. Now I'm not saying that any of this stuff is bad. All right, I want you to get that straight. In and of itself, it's not bad but they can easily become objects of worship for us. And that's what we have to guard against. Because we all do it, don't we? We all do it to some extent. But it's wisdom for us to remember that God's ways don't change and that he'll speak to us through our idols, however that's manifest. And as we do our flyover of the Bible and we read these stories, it's easy for us to just blow them off and just blow by them and not pay much attention to them. After all, there are a bunch of old stories about a bunch of old dead people, and they really don't have application to us, but they do. There is so much we can learn from these Old Testament stories to see how God works with people. Paul puts it this way in his first letter to the church in Corinth. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, he says, now these things happened as examples for us. Now these things that he's talking about are these Old Testament stories. He says, these things that happened are, are as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. So let me just kind of close with this. Because we're going to be moving into the season of Lent in a couple of weeks, and that's for many people, uh, for Christians anyway, it's a time of self-examination where we look at our lives and we, we ponder things. Well, here's a question that I want you to ponder as you go into Lent. And I want to make it personal because I, have, I ask this question to myself all the time. If God wanted to get your attention, how would he do it? If God really wanted to get your attention, how would he do it? How would he speak to you? You know, it's an interesting exercise because we all have idols. I mean, if we don't have one today, we'll have one tomorrow or the next day. Things that we prioritize in life and dare I say things that we even come to worship? You know, I have, over the years, I have learned a lot uh, of God's ways. And one of the things that I've learned about God, and this is, God is a covenant maker. You go through the, the Bible and you'll find he's a covenant maker. And if you have if you have claimed him, if you have decided to follow him, if you have become one of his, you have established a covenant. And he's established a covenant. And God will see to it, friends, and this is true. God will see to it that the covenant that you made with him will be fulfilled. And if you're like me and you... You stray every now and then, and you go off and you start putting your focus on something else that enhances your life or whatever it is. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your business. Maybe, I don't know what it is. But whatever you put there in front of him, he's going to fulfill that covenant. And the way he's going to get your attention is through that idol. Whatever you do, whatever you put before him, that's how he's going to communicate with you. That's what he did with the people of Egypt. That's what he did with the people of Israel. That's what he does with us as Christians. And it's not punishment. I want you to get, it's not retribution. It's an act of grace. It's an act of love. It's an act of restoration. And it opens up a channel of blessing that flows, through, flows not only to us, but through us. And God doesn't let it slide. Simple as that. So I'll ask the question again. If God wanted to get your attention, how would he do it? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we, uh, 
We just pray that if we have found any favor in your sight, you would teach us your ways, that you would show us your ways, that we might find favor in your sight. Lord, teach us how to please you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.